out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As always, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the band known as Breathless, because I spoke to their vocalist and keyboard player Dominic Appleton to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. Anyway, this is the interview. Um, I could tell you lots about Breathless, but frankly, Mr. Shankly, you'll find out more about them during this riveting 60 minutes. So take notes. I will test you at the end just to make sure you're paying attention. Anyway, they have a new album that's going to be coming out um, at the well, beginning of next year and also a reissue. Anyway, look, I'm, you know, we're going to find out about all this a bit later on, very soon, in fact. So, look, after several minutes of casual chat with Dominic to find, um, yes, just to make sure our internet connection was all good and groovy, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Dominic, tell us now. Tell us everything. Well, funnily enough, um, Space Odyssey, Odyssey, Odyssey um, was an album that got bought for me when I was really young. And I, I know that album so well. I know it's not the best David Bowie album, but I know it word, word for word. Yes. Um, but for me, my sort of proper musical awakening was probably when I was about 13, 14. And it was sort of just after punk, when sort of post-punk was starting. Um, so we were a really similar age, you and I. Right. And um, I met, well, I was at school with Gary, the guitarist in Breathless, and I just started doing chores in the house and I would buy an album every single week. Um, and I can remember, uh, I think the first one I bought was Squeeze, which was a bit of a shit album actually, but I did love Take Me, I'm Yours. Right. And then Crossing the Red Sea with the adverts and the Deaf School album and then the Only Ones albums and oh god knows it just went on it was very for me it was a massively exciting time in music I think the very late 70s and the beginning of 80s and I, but I think I felt like in the 80s uh, things got less interesting as, as the 80s pro- progressed. Yes. When I was turned 50, I just had that thing where it was like, how did that happen? I can't remember where all those years have gone. So I, um, in a very anal way, wrote down my favourite records of every year just so I could map it because I'm quite good at music, but not very good at anything else. Just so I could map my life and see where it had gone. And it was interesting how, you know, in sort of 1978, 1979, 1980, there'd be like two sides of favourite records. And by 1987, there was like a quarter of a page. Wow. It really, yeah, I don't know what happened. It It could very well have been working in the record shop actually um, anaesthetises you. Yeah. And also being in the band, because I was was one of those people that probably fantasized about being in the band and thought it must be great um but was always a fan so it never I never had that kind of moment of getting too close because I do remember a few people I've interviewed is it Ariane from the Slits and she said that when she'd finished you know with the band 
music made her physically ill. She said she, said she couldn't listen to records or music or anything for years. It was just such a traumatic experience. So, um, yeah, it's kind of, and I, I think with a lot of bands, and I remember this guy from Mega City 4, when they finished, he just said that, you know, they, he'd been doing it for 10 or 15 years with this band and it was over and then they had this tax bill so they had to sell all their equipment and there was no, had no home, no house, nothing. And just wandered the streets for about a year, cut his hair and just didn't know what to do. He was just in a bit of a depressed shock state really, you know. It was like, it was over, but it was more than over because it was like, God, I've got nothing. You know, I wasn't the writer of the songs, you know. It was like, but we've got this massive tax bill so I haven't even got any yeah, instruments. That is weird, that's awful. But I suppose that, I think people who have been done over by the music industry or who have had um, more success than we've ever had and then had it taken away from you, it would make you very disenchanted. Yes. It. Yeah. It was tricky. Um, <laughs> we, both of us have never had that um, <laughs> being quite so successful. <laughs> yes, because cause it's interesting, you talked about the post-punk, because I suppose for me, in, in a very simplistic way, you know, I was, I mean, I had an old brother who was seven years older, who was kind of, in, he was into the prog world, and he brought home, you know, Sergeant Pepper by the Beatles, just in case you didn't know who that was by, and Elton John's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, and then he had all the prog albums, which I kind of loved, because I was about 12, 13, thought it was very exciting. And then, you know, his musical moment, kind of, that was it, really, and he finished. And then when I was getting a bit older, I didn't really get into sort of the post-punk world. That all seemed still very kind of weird. But then I remember hearing John Peel one night thinking, I must try and find some new music. And he played the, the I Am The Fly by, um, by Wire and thinking, God, that's a bit strange, and, and, but slightly fascinated by it. And I think it was just that moment of, you know, wanting to go to gigs in little places like the art centres and all those kind of, world, you know, those venues that, littered the whole country during the 80s and the 90s I guess um that you started to develop your own excitement so you had the sort of punk period and then there was that post-punk period which is very awkward and tricky but you have to love it because it makes you look kind of cool and sophisticated but then indie pop I put down in the years of 83 to 87 which was the years of the Smiths I know it's such a cliche isn't it and you came along in 83 wasn't it this was your moment yeah we did we did it's true yeah because before that, you know, you had the early years of like Big Country, Simple Minds, U2, you know, Julian Cope had been doing quite a lot of stuff, but then, and Echo and the Bunnymen, and then suddenly Morrissey and Marr appeared, and it was like, okay, new chapter, this is definitely indie, you know, and it was just this kind of almost a glorious moment for five years, wasn't it? I suppose so. I can I see exactly what you're saying. Yeah. It's funny though, isn't it? I've never been a fan of the Smiths, but I'm surrounded by Smiths lovers. I work for a club I have done for 26 years called Ducky, which um, uh, uh, is in Vauxhall on Saturday nights usually, um, but hasn't been for the last 18 months. But um, And oh my God, I've heard enough Smiths to last me. Who's the woman who runs Ducky? Well, there's six of us all together, but there's Amy you're probably thinking of. Yes, well, interestingly enough, a little bit of an aside, she brought her show, you know, she taught her show and came to Norwich with it about Morrissey coming to her birthday party. Oh, that was a good one, wasn't it? It I was good, that. and was she fun. dragged me onto the floor, which was one of my absolute, <laughs> oh my God, I never want this to happen. But I don't, I don't think she realised it, but I'd done an interview with her about the show because um, I can't remember what it was like, but it was like, 
it wasn't waiting for Morrissey, wasn't it? Or was that my unhappy birthday? That was what it was called. Unhappy birthday. That's what it was called. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So she did this one woman show, and then I got dragged up to do a song with her. Though I slightly mimed it because my voice is not good. Oh, uh, any... I was. I yes. Yeah. yeah, that's the one thing you don't pay to have, is it? Being on stage. <laughs> so, well, look, be, just going back then, when did you discover your voice? Uh, what it was, was Ari and I, um, Ari the bass player in Breathless and I, were in a band together when we worked at Virgin with this girl called Dunya, who was the singer. And um, basically how Ari and I connected was we both liked what one another were doing. I like what she did and she liked what I did. But actually we didn't particularly like the way everything else was going. So we formed a splinter group and um, it's like, well, one of us has got to sing. And it was me. And it was, well, it was more me because, especially because I play keyboard, but I've never trained music in music. And uh, I wanted to sing because I couldn't actually um, uh, put across what I could hear in my head on the keyboard. Right. Um, so singing made sense, but I had zero confidence in my voice. And I've never been that confident about my voice. And to, definitely when Ivo asked me to sing for this Norfolk Coil, that um, gave me a boost. But I just, even then I had slight sort of, what's that, charlatan syndrome or whatever. Yes, uh, imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome, that's it, yeah. Yes. And I still have it, I'm afraid. And that's why I'm I, I'm also not very keen to play live. I don't right. like it. But I do it, but only when we have to. <laughs> yeah. So was it was so the early band was a cruel memory. This is the band that you were in. That was the band I was in when I was at school with Gary. So or just I think we'd finished just finished school, in fact. Um uh yeah, and that that was a band based in Croydon because we went to school in Purley and um that was with Gary and Bob from Ramley and me and our drummer was Andrea um it's the Italian boy that we went to school with uh yeah that was fun and that's how we we also used to play music for Anne Clark. We did the first Anne Clark album. I don't know if you've ever heard of her. Yes, I have. A local Croydon poet. Yes. Uh, and we used to put on nights at um, Croydon Warehouse Theatre and and other things. But yeah. Yeah. So you always had quite a artistic, arty side to you. Well, you probably still have. I just love music and always wanted to make music. And uh, yeah, I, you know, I was one of those people at school, Gary and I are both the same. We were the two last people to be pick, picked for the football team. Um, and I just sat in my bedroom and listened to music for like, you know, um, like what's it music, yes. yeah. Lovely, melancholy music in my bedroom. Loved it. So when you listen to the early kind of lyrics of the Smiths and Morrissey, did that not kind of resonate a bit with you? 
obviously, and obviously Morrissey is a remarkable lyricist, but I, I guess I just heard it too much straight away. They were huge straight away. They were, as much as Morrissey would dispute this, they were completely inescapable. And when you worked in a record shop, you two and the fucking Smiths were all you ever heard, all you ever heard, like back to back albums uh, drove me insane both those bands right and what you did you go to virtually every gig you could every night when you were in london when i was really young I, yeah we, i mean um before i worked for the for the in the record shop um me and gary and a couple of other friends from school would just buy the music paper every week and a bit like you coming uh, from where you came from we didn't get the music, we didn't get the sounds or enemy until the day after it came out. So it came out, we used to get it on Thursday when we knew it came out on Wednesday. But it would just, we would get it and pour over it and work out what gigs we could go to. We had no money. We just would have the rail fare and the entrance and that was it. And I remember going to these gigs and just thinking, oh, I can't wait till I can come to these gigs and like buy a drink. I mean, God, we must have been so dehydrated because it was so hot. Um, but yeah, we used to go to gigs, gigs, gigs until I guess we uh, were about 18, 19. And then, there were, then we started going to clubs as well as gigs, um, maybe less gigs and more clubs, that sort of thing. But um, yeah, I, yeah, I love going to gigs. And then, when, of course, when I worked at Virgin, we got free tickets quite often. So, my God, that must have been paradise, really, mustn't it? Free tickets and cheap records. It was just brilliant. Yeah. Yes, it must have been. I stayed there so long. Yes, it's always tempting. So, when you went and recorded the first single, which had the Waterland, the B with the B side, um, Second Heaven, had you got the material all well rehearsed and sort of, um, yeah, demoed? Uh, fairly well rehearsed, as you might be able to hear on the record. But um, yeah, it was, uh, it was, that was the demo. Um, we had written it, Tristan, our drummer, had only just joined. I think he had literally been with us for a couple of weeks. Um, uh, uh, but that was, yeah, our... That was essentially our first dem demo. So what we did was we recorded them and we went around all the record companies, which was the only time we did that. And people were very nice or not, um, but it didn't get us anywhere. So we decided we'd just put it out ourselves. Yes, on your own label. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, because that was the time when people did that. You could do yeah. that. Well, I mean, did people like, I don't know, Creation Records, were they at all interested in or anybody like? Creation didn't exist, I don't think, when we started. Or if they did, they were just starting themselves. We didn't apply to Creation. We did, uh, do you know, I only ever remember going to Rough Trade. Um, but we went to loads. But even people like Arista, just purely because we worked at a record shop, uh, there were people sort of saying, I'll go and see What's-His-Face, because What's-His-Face boyfriend did the A&R there, that sort of thing. Yes, yeah. So did you start um, playing live quite quickly as well? Uh, yeah, once we'd released something, we did, yes. I mean, there's a, it, uh, once 
once you've released something, you have to play live. Before that, you can do that. Oh, I don't think we're ready yet. Oh, I don't think we're ready yet. Oh, I don't think we're ready yet. Which I would have done for all eternity. But once you've released something, you've got to. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And when you got Tristan on drum, did that feel like you had the gang? Was that the sort of time when you thought, God, this is a real band. We've got the name. We've, got, we've been in the studio with first singles. I never liked the name that much. Um, did it? I, I felt when Ari, Gary, and I first got together, it felt very complete straight away. It's just, it was just the way the three of us could um, experiment in front of one another and always tended to like what the other person was doing. It just worked in a very magical way right from the start. It, yes. felt, it felt magical anyway. And yeah, and, and getting a drummer, getting Tristram in, getting Martin in, those, um, uh, th that really added to it, obviously, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. then you brought in, was it John Fryer who did your first, who produced your first album? I can't remember. Was it not Drosten that did the first album? God, I... So I did, well, yeah, I think John Fryer did the second album because that's got a very John Fryer sound. Um, basically, uh, oh, obviously we were in touch with Ivo. So we've been to 4AD and they were super helpful. Um, and Ivo really did like what we did and did, but he didn't sign us. Um, but he like gave us a mailing list, stuff like that, gave us advice, suggested engineers uh, and stuff. So both Droston Madden and John Fryer were um, Ivo's suggestions. Of people. Right, I got you. So when you were doing, I mean, at that stage, because one thing I've noticed doing this show was that there were the gatekeepers, you know, we had John Peel, who was massive. Then we had those three weekly music papers and every city and town in, in England and Britain had an alternative night, didn't they? Mostly on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Did you sort yeah. of feel like once once it got your band formed and you got your sound and look, did it feel like you were moving quite quickly at that stage? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, it didn't. It didn't. I mean, it never... I suppose when things took off in Italy in the way that they did, because we were very popular uh in italy in the middle 80s um that was exciting that was very exciting and it felt fast but um sort of international interest like american interest in stuff it just felt so far away it never right it didn't feel, quite, it didn't feel that real we never we never thought of going on tour to america weirdly until uh the millennium yes um, so uh just because we just thought that we couldn't fund it and well and touring in america was very different where you know touring in europe you would um get paid to do it whereas <laughs> touring in america you virtually do pay for yourself or that's how it, it was for yeah. us so, did you um, did you ever get a manager no Right, so you were just... No, we were just weird. We are weird. We are very strange people. We're, we're, we're all quite shy. Um, 
uh, and that sort of thing just seemed like some, I don't know, it's not something we did. We didn't try. No. <laughs> yes. So when you came to your second album, did, were you still, this is 87, which I almost have down as the best year of music ever. Though David, <laughs> though David Hepworth goes on that 1971, but frankly, 80, 87, if you look at the gigs, uh, the, the releases yeah, yeah. were just stunning. I mean, was there a bit of confidence in the band at that stage? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, with the second album, we were sort of experimenting more with our sounds, I suppose. Um, but then interestingly, I would say the second album, as I remember it, John Fryer took more control in the sound of what it ended up sounding like, how it was mixed. Uh, so, um, yeah, we, I mean, we're certainly more confident in, in terms of songwriting and that just grew and has grown with each album, to be honest. Yes. I mean, maybe... Is... Yeah, go on. I, I was just going to say, because this is where Tristan leaves the band, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, half... Yeah, so half the album... You're right, half the album is with Tristan and half the album is with Martin. Was that a bit of a shock to the, to the line-up? Uh, no, we kind of knew it was going to happen with Tristan. Um, he didn't seem as committed. It took us a, a, quite a while to find someone, or it felt like quite a while. Um, but uh, Martin fit in very well because he was a nice musical drummer. Yes. As well. So, no, it, it in a way, it might have been, you know, quite... Uh, refreshing to have a different musician come in halfway through sort of thing yeah i mean the way we recorded in those days well the way we recorded albums was we would write five songs go in and do it and then six months later give ourselves six months and write another five songs and record them so they were always recorded in two halves the album yeah and did you and did you feel because you mentioned the imposter syndrome did you feel we're getting more confident with your your writing and singing at this stage So I guess I was, but not really. I mean, you know, it's such a funny thing. I really, my favourite thing is writing music. I enjoy it so much. And I even enjoy writing lyrics. But what I always find is um, I'm very pleased with them. And then the album comes out and then all of a sudden I'm mortified. Because <laughs> <laughs> it is quite personal. It's quite, you know, exposing. And um, yeah something gets released and it's like oh blimey people are, are going are listening to that yes now. it's out there isn't it it's kind of weird always reminds me when you do those kind of projects i suppose i remember things like dissertations where you you work on it so solidly and then you hand it in and then you never want to read it again until oh, yeah, yeah. 20 years later when you're in the attic and you look and you start reading it and it's like oh it's not too bad you know but you just don't yeah. want to ever look at it again once it's been you know sent off because you know there's a song i never knew where you are I never know where you are, yeah. I never know where you are. Yeah. Yeah, was there a, because <clears throat> that's a kind of an amazingly beautiful song, but it does remind me of another song in the charts at that time or years really? before. 
What one? Remember that? Remember the cutting? I think it's something like, I almost died in your arms tonight. Oh my God. Yeah. I hate I that. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what they were called? I promise you, if there was any influence there, I mean, if they came out at the same time and then there was no influence, um, it was completely subconscious because that isn't a song I like. I am going to. I'm going to have to go and listen to that. <laughs> it I will pay. I just was listening and I just kept thinking, God, there's something just in the background that keeps coming in. And, you know, you keep thinking, what's that song? Yeah, I remember John Peel used to do it. And then I thought, I vaguely reckon, you know, I, but, it, you know, like you said, I mean. Yeah, I a melody. Or, yeah, probably. Yeah, is. a bit of a melody. Do, do, do. You know. It's okay, a, well, I'm going I'm to have to listen to that. No one has ever pointed that out before, and hopefully no one will ever point it out again. <laughs> no, you'll go, fuck, he's not listened to that song at all. I don't know what he's on. <laughs> but I don't know, it just, it, it was just, it, it just, I was just listening to it a few times, and then there was that moment where you just thought, I mean, because it's interesting doing this show, because I've, I've, I've done quite a few interviews with producers, and it's in, you know, like, including people like, is it Tim Palmer and Mark Saunders who became kind of the producers for that moment? A bit like Trevor Horn as well. Did you find working with a producer kind of a good experience? Uh, we credited uh, Justin and I think we did and um, John with production, but they were never producers in the sense that they would tell us to rewrite or restructure a song. So um, we credited them with as producers in terms of their input in the mixing um, and the sounds that they put onto the songs. But they never, um, lots of producers will say, yeah, I like that and that about the song. So you're going to make that the main bit of the song and you're going to make, and you're going to cut that out and you're going to, that sort of thing. They never did that, and we've never actually worked with anyone that has done that. Um, yes. Well, you always. I'm very interested to do that. To be honest, to to see what other people make of our stuff with the new album. Funnily enough, that um, so uh, um, we've got a re-release coming out at the moment, but in, we've just finished another album, and with that, we have just we didn't mix it ourselves at all we just sent it all to Kramer in the States oh Kramer the great bong water that's the one that's the one yeah god he did Galaxy 500 didn't he yeah he did low and Galaxy 500 which um yeah yes I once did an interview with him and I was like because I loved bong water and then he said I'm not talking about it it's bad it's just about being a bad experience. I never want to speak about them, about the band. It's like, oh, shit, it's all it's I've got to talk about. It's such a shame, the, the experience that people have with other musicians and stuff that completely alienates them from what well, they've done, yeah. Yeah, it was a bit of a shock. But it was good, you know, he sort of told me some amusing stories about working with Galaxy 500 and, I don't know, I think he found there some original cassettes or, or recordings they did, and he just went back and just left them on the doorstep one night. So, um, but he was, yeah, quite a character. And that was obviously just going back to your recording at that stage. That's why you did, because you mentioned the only ones and you covered one of their songs, didn't you? Yeah, that's right. Flowers Die. Yes. Yeah. So, were you, um, 
was that was that something that because David Bowie used to always do a cover didn't he on some of his kind of latter albums did you sort of yeah. enjoy doing someone else's work it was an education actually uh just in how and it's weird that we never do cover versions before that and we haven't really have we since I don't think we have um uh in terms of just how other people put songs together. <laughs> so we just did it once. It was quite an education. Um, obviously for me, uh, singing cover versions for the This More For Cole project on 4AD, that again, made me look at how, I mean, obviously you're listening to music all the time, but actually taking it apart and working it out yes. is quite different. Otherwise it's this thing, this thing that's arise fully formed and I don't, even though I'm a musician, I don't analyze music. Maybe it's because I'm not a proper musician, I'm a singer. Um, I don't analyze it in perhaps the way that Ari or Gary might. Yeah, knowing, knowing how the mechanics should work. It's quite interesting, isn't it? Because one of these producers I've interviewed, he said that it was difficult with a lot of American musicians because they were so good that when he wanted them to try something quite experimental, they would explain, no, that doesn't work because this, this and this. And he was going, yeah, but we're not really producing anything at the moment that's very good. But if you were an English musician who was a bit rubbish, but had some sort of like, oh, what the hell, let's have a go with it. We might find something in there. But he said the American musicians were just too, too technically good for, for sort of messing about sometimes. That, uh, I think that's, you know, that's the thing with studying music. I've got um, friends who are classical musicians who... Um, I mean, one of them, who I had this particular conversation with, studied with Gavin Bryars, um, and she was a beautiful uh, 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 fiddle player, not fiddle, you know, violin, that's the word, um, and she could not improvise for her life. She could play the most complicated music, but tell her to just play something by herself, and she just couldn't because she just, that's not how she learned. She learned to play music that was sat in front of her, which just seems crazy because she played in, she played beautifully, you know, yeah. with real sensitivity. So you feel that surely you, she could express that or that part, she could express parts of herself through music, but no. And it's just because the same with dancers, I know you study dance, it takes all, and it's all the, fun out of it and, <laughs> um, and it just becomes a, 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 a process not I suppose it's a, more like a science then isn't it it's more than I think it was I, I think I seem to remember he was working with Marilyn Manson one of the you know a guitarist who had all the tattoos looked like the absolute archetypal you know LA rocker suddenly picked up acoustic guitar and played this most amazing bluegrass and 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 it was like this expression of like God, you didn't expect that, did you? And he said, and then the guy said, Yeah, I used to sort of play in so and so's band, and I can play all that sort of music, or I can play with Marilyn Manson, do all the rock stuff, you know. Just it's yeah. just like I'm just able to, you know, I pass my GCSE in music, and I'm on the way. So um, <laughs> yeah. 
it's kind of that world. Because then, yeah, because your sort of second chapter, the 87 to, to um, 94, it's kind of an interesting, for me, it's an interesting time in music because the Smiths break out horrendous. And then, you know, ecstasy comes along and there is that new wave of 16 to 18 year olds who want their, you know, music, which is their soundtrack, which is the dance and rave stuff. And then you had that kind of North London scene with My Bloody Valentine and Faith Eaters and Silverfish and all that scene. So did you just kind of cruise through that without sort of paying too much attention? Absolutely. In fact, I mean, with the exception of My Bloody Valentine, Silverfish and who else did you mention? The Faith Healers. The Faith Healers. Okay, yeah, no, I've heard of both of those, but I have no idea what either of them sound like. It was noise. Is... North, North London noise, really, wasn't it? But yeah, I'd have no idea, but yeah, as a Londoner, I wasn't aware of them, but I did stop going to gigs around that time, but I was at college then. So you'd think that I would be more aware. But yeah, we just passed, mind our own course. We um, didn't know people in other bands. We just kept ourselves to ourselves and made the music. We just loved making music together. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, we were, I was aware of some stuff going on, obviously, but um, yeah, a bit, a bit oblivious. So when you released Don't Just Disappear, did, was it a conscious decision to sort of have a break from everything because of going for other commitments? Was there a big, was that our first big gap then? Yes. Um, I think, Don't Just Disappear. What album was Don't Just Disappear on? Oh, it's on Between Happiness, is it? No. I can't remember. I can't remember the order, but I can tell you that there was a point where I think after we made between Happiness and Heartache, 30 years ago in 1991. Mm -hmm. so, uh, that, so the, the anniversary is this year for that, which is why we're reissuing it. Um, and once we'd done that, then you know what you were saying about confidence and uh, that really did feel, that album and the, the one before felt like big steps for us and um it went down very well and those two albums um chasing promises and between happiness and heartache um uh were people in america were suddenly we're hearing from people in america and stuff like that and they felt more accomplished those albums and once we had done um between Happiness and Heartache, when we started writing again, we recorded a whole album um, quite soon after that, and it just felt like Between Happiness and Heartache Part Two. It didn't feel like a progression at all. Um, and so we junked it, and uh, we sort of floundered around for a while. Um, uh, and the, all of us all listen to different, have always listened to different music. There's some overlap, like, um, I don't know, um, The Only Ones was one that we all listened to. Um, Pink Floyd, certain periods of Pink Floyd, and um, maybe Can, um, Future Days album and stuff. But, uh, 
I remember regrouping and Ari was listening to a lot of Hole then. She really liked Hole. And yeah, that bass line on Don't Just Disappear was Ari coming, to, coming up with that because she wants to sound like Hole. And the interesting thing is, you know, uh, even when we set out to do something that might be a bit rawer like Hole or might be a bit um, quite rocky, it all always ends up sounding like us. We have, we've got this weird sound that is ours. Um, <laughs> yeah. I suppose that's, it's both good, isn't it? And um, I know being a fickle fan, it's kind of strange. I often think it must be horrendous being in a band because if it's the same as the album before you, you know, people go, oh, it's not quite as good. But if you, you, you decide to do your low album like David Bowie, everyone freaks out. I'm like, oh, that doesn't sound like David Bowie at all. I want Ziggy Stardust. But if you gave me Ziggy Stardust part two, you'd yeah, win. Yeah, about that as well. You can't win. So, no, it's better that you... I just don't think you can enjoy doing the same thing over and over again. And I think for us, uh, Between Happiness and Artake was, it was just progress, progress, progress. And then we hit a bit of a brick wall, which is why the next album was Blue Moon. And that was very sort of lo-fi because a lot of it was uh, recordings that we, we at the time we were rehearsing in Berry Street, which actually was a recording studio. So we could actually record to cassette or dat um, with decent microphones, our rehearsals. Yes. So um, half of that album is uh, rehearsal recordings and stuff. And that was how it just, things got fresher again for us. So Blue Moon was a good experience? Uh, Blue Moon was a very good experience, but actually it came out of a lot, uh, out of a loss of identity. And, um, and it was just a, a, a different approach to writing and recording. Yes, because then you quickly, I mean, when you came back in 99, the millennium did you was there a feeling that after having that break there was a sort of renewed excitement you know excitement because then you followed blue moon up with behind the light quite quickly don't you yeah well relatively quickly for us i think it's still about four years <laughs> but, um yes it did feel quite fresh uh but then uh, Behind the Light was a very enjoyable experience, but I can remember it being slow. I remember the track Behind the Light. I think we were, I mean, it's a 15 minute epic or something or 12 minute epic. But I remember it taking us the best part of a year to write. It's one of my favorite songs that we've ever done. But wow, it, was, it wasn't an easy, didn't just pop out. Yes, fully, fully formed. Yeah. But then you lost your guitar uh, drummer, didn't you, again, Martin? Yeah, what we did was um, after Behind the Light, we had another identity crisis and we actually took a sabbatical. Um, and it, it, it's, I think it's very common after you make an album to have, we call it post-studio blues. Yes. Where uh, you're so proud of what you've just done that it's hard to do something else. Um, so as we were talking about earlier, you need to inject new life into things. 
And in that instance, what we did was we took a sabbatical of three months and we said that, okay, when we come back in three months, we each have to bring two songs with us, um, uh, which is what we did. When we came back after the three months, Ari Gary and I had a couple of songs each and Martin just came and I was, he was late and I was playing one of the songs I had brought and he walked in and just said, I'm leaving. And I just get really quite personally. Um, but uh, <laughs> that was, yeah, that was the way it worked. And again, that was the beginning of an, a whole new period of where, because in, in, before that, we wrote songs always together based on like a guitar riff or a bass riff or a keyboard idea or something. Yes. And then all of a sudden we've started doing writing music, bringing a fully formed song to the others. Yes. Um, so yeah, that was a, a, a very different, so that was a very different thing in the album Green to Blue was, that's where that was most pronounced where, you know, some of the songs that are written by specifics, we always, I mean, we credit everything as breathless, but in fact, they were written by an So what was it like, <clears throat> you know, a bit like the Magnificent Seven or the return of, isn't it? Getting Tristan back into, in, onto the hot seat. That was lovely. That was lovely. And it was a bit like um, uh, he never went. And it was weird because he was only with us for the first 18 months. And, um, and I didn't feel like I knew him very well. And, um, and then he came back and it was, yeah, it was lovely, lovely to have him back. He, you know, he just fell back into place. Because again, the thing is with Martin and Tristan, they were a really good fit. Um, and it was very comfortable musically, yeah. Yes. So you don't, have, you don't have to know them. You don't have to sort of go out for dinner with them regularly or anything like that. It's just how you work together musically. Because there was a guitarist and a singer-songwriter, Boo Huadine, who was in the Bible. Um, actually, I think that's yeah. a bad name, actually. But he mentioned the drummer, the drummer of a band is absolutely essential. It kind of make or break a band and, um, you know, just yeah, kind of... It just yeah. has such an influence. So were they quite different in style and, and sort of energy? <clears throat> uh, yes. Um, yes, they were both musical drummers, but they did have their own uh, distinctive style. Uh, Martin used to try and keep his energy from his elbows down. <laughs> and he was quite powerful, but um, he held back, whereas uh, Tristan was more, um, he, he had more energy. Um, so Martin was probably more musical, but Martin was more of a, although Martin did come from a punk background, he was in a band called Charge, who were a punk band before he worked for Danielle Dax. Whereas Tristan had more energy. Martin, like, I think Martin's probably Martin's favorite drum was Steve Janssen or someone out of Japan. Right. Uh, uh, and I have no idea who Tristan's favourite drummer was, but yeah, he's, he, he was in a band called Sunglasses After Dark, and they were more sort of punky, rockabilly type of thing. Yeah. So, so then you came out with Green to Blue, and then it's been another long wait, hasn't it? A really long wait, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Eight, nine, ten years. 
Yeah, 2012 Greece Blue came out. My God. So is it the case that, you know, you just have to get a day job or you had a day job and think the band just has to sort of... Day job. Yeah, I've always had a day job. But, um, yeah, I suppose it's... Uh, we write a lot slower. I mean, when we were first together, we were rehearsing three times a week. And um, when... Uh, oh, shit, I just noticed the power on my computer. Um and you know when we're in our 30s and 40s we were just rehearsing once a week and so inevitably things slowed down there and then I suppose you get older you've got more commitments more responsibilities fuck knows what they are but they um, <laughs> uh, and yeah we just work much slower um, do you have quite it, a following in Europe now as a band well, it was nice. We went to Germany and Italy a few years ago, and it was nice because we were. It had been so long since we'd been to Europe that we weren't sure. We did three nights in Italy and three nights in Germany, I think. And um, particularly in Italy, um, they were so well attended. It was fantastic. In Germany, they were also well attended, but weirdly. Uh, like when we were in, there were a lot of Polish people there, <laughs> more than German people. There were probably when we played in Berlin, there were more Polish people than than German. People. Yes. So, so what's, the, what's the typical? What's that? I was going to say, what's a typical fan like a Breathless? I've no idea. They're, I don't think there is a typical one. I don't even know what else they listen to actually right what does a breathless fan listen to <clears throat> when it's not breathless i suppose it's funny you've never been on 4ad have you <clears throat> yeah so i suppose a lot of them do have a 4ad thing going on it's almost you could have put money that you'd be on 4ad records really let's face it i've always said to you, we're one of the bands that uh, should have been on 4ad yeah yeah so with your the, the label that you've released everything that's your label yeah, yeah. God. Yeah, but Ari, Ari really runs that. Um, uh, and Gary and I, um, you know, are, are the musicians. Are, but um, yeah, Ari runs the label. Yeah. Yes. So with your eighth album with Kramer, was that all recorded before lockdown? Uh, I might. Yes, I think it was. It might have been just being loose ends being tied up. Oh yeah, yeah, it was recorded. We what we had to do was clean up the um, tapes, and because of lockdown, we would book studio time because we finished it all off at home. So again, it was another uh, different way of recording for us because we were. This is when we started recording at home. Yes. Uh, um, but because we were recording at home, we did need to get the files cleaned up. And so we, Kevin Poiret, the engineer from Berry Street, we still work with him and he was um, just sort of getting all the crappy noise off and stuff that, and the washing machines, et cetera, that were, um, so, so we had to get the files cleaned up. So yeah, though it was finished, but uh, probably just before lockdown, but it was mm. written across those, those years. So some of the songs are very old, which was also why, it was nice to uh, 
be able to send everything to Kramer rather than to have to mix it ourselves, just to get, get it completely fresh. And when you, with the recording process, do you prefer doing it sort of individually or all in the same space? I like the sort of formal event of going to the studio. I, I mean, I absolutely love being in the studio. Um, but I have found that um, I also really enjoy working at home. At the moment, I've, I've been, the whole time I've been in Breathless, I've always just been in Breathless. I've never written with anybody else, but in the last couple of years, I've started uh, a project called Starlight Assembly with this um, Italian guy called Matteo Guri. And we write, I, 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 yeah, I work at home, and it's brilliant. And we work uh, in quite an intense, fast way of just sending files backwards and forwards. So we did an album in a year, whereas Breathless do an album in 10 years. <laughs> so um, yeah, that, that's been a whole different experience of being able to record at home and stuff, which is great. Was there, a, was there a period in, in the sort of the breath breathless story that um you just suddenly realized actually this is going to be with me for the rest of my life uh i can never imagine not doing it so i don't know if i've consciously had that thought i must have had that thought but um uh i, ca I can't imagine ever not making music i just can't i love it so much i get so much out of it yes it's it's so, you know, it's such a, a wonderful reason to be, sort of thing. Well, in, in the, yes, in this day and age as well. And does Kramer, does he add a special element to to the recordings, you know, to the production? Yeah, it, it was very interesting just how fresh and different it felt coming back. And sort of the first time I listened to the track, I was kind of confused. It was like, because things that I thought were there weren't there and things that I couldn't remember playing were there. And I was kind of thrown. And the second time I listened to it, it was like, wow, wow, that's, that he's done such a lovely, lovely job. He's, he's sprinkled the fairy dust on it. He, he, he did sprinkle some fairy dust on this. <laughs> yes. So what's the, when's the album out and what's it, what's the title? Um, I think the album should be out at uh, the beginning of next year, or certainly by the spring. Um, and it's, at, at, at the moment, it's called See Those Colours Fly. Right. Has, have you done the artwork? Yeah. Well, we have the picture for the cover. It's so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. It's my favourite ever breathless sleeve. God, is it, is it a photo painting? It's a, a collage made by someone called Jay Cloth, um, seriously, who, uh, uh, who, he does amazing collages, um, but this is a process where he gets old Polaroid pictures and um, peels them apart and scratches some of the image away and then puts another image underneath so it's a bit like yeah wow your other images very beautiful actually and is it coming out as a vinyl as a vinyl copy as well 
Oh, I hope, yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. I'm a bit of an addict, so. Well, it has to, it just has to happen. And also, just to confirm, you also reissue in between happiness and heartache. Yeah, on pink vinyl. Yeah. On pink vinyl, on your label. And that, in, is that coming out this year? That's coming out. What date is it? I think that came out this week. Jesus Christ, there you go. July, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think it came out this week, yeah. Um, yeah, for its 30th anniversary. Yes, oh my God. Do you find then that, you, you know, when you get the orders that they are like looking at the addresses, people from all over the world just buying the album? I have no idea whatsoever. Ari would, Ari would our bass player would be able to answer that. I know that we're meant to be going to Mexico next year. Um, so yeah, but it, I've noticed when I listen to things on Spotify that Mexico City seems to be um, an international musical hub. I, you know, whoever I'm listening to, Mexico City seems to be in the top five of where that band is most listened to, sort of thing. Blimey, there you go. There was a band, wasn't there? I can't. Oh, the Wall of Voodoo, Mexican radio. Oh yes, yeah classic yeah. song so look if you were able to tell your 16 or 18 year old self you know some bit of what wise wisdom from all the experience and decades is there anything you would have say to that person or what you would even say to yourself now that you've learned from just being being in the game still i suppose i suppose because breathless are the world's smallest cult and because a lot of that is about how shy we are and how unconfident I am. Um, I would say to my 16 year old self, you know, sit with the music it is the most important thing, um, but believe in yourself a bit more and push it a bit more if you want to just be a musician, because it would be lovely to just make music. Um, but I have to do other things to actually eat. <laughs> yes, some <laughs> pay rent. So yeah, I guess if I, but you know, it's about I don't. If I was a pushy person or a more confident person, um, breathless would sound completely different. Uh, yeah. Probably, um, we wouldn't be. The, we are sensitive souls, um, sensitive romantic souls. I think, and so. You know, that's just the way it is. And I'm completely happy with the way my life has turned out. Well, and I love still music. Yes. Well, the 80s kind of is a classic. For me, it's about romantic melancholia, really. So um, I suppose that's... That's that's what we specialise in. Yeah, that's that's one's go-to kind of vibe, isn't it? Romantic melancholia. It's funny, we always used to be a little bit... I said this before, but... We've always used to be a bit defensive about the melancholia in Breathless because people would criticise it. Why do you make such pussy music? But, um, and I used to feel defensive about it, but actually, you know what? That's what we do. That's what we do best. We do really well. If you don't like it, if you want to listen to something up, go listen to something up or go to a disco and have a dance. But, uh, discotheque, whatever they're called, yes. um, club even. Um, but, you know, we're there for people who want that. 
Sensitive, sensitive souls looking for the light. Have you, so are you going to enjoy playing live again next year? No, but I will do it. <laughs> <laughs> did you I ever, hate, did you ever see that. a sort of front person that you thought, oh God, you know, I'm going to slightly sort of try and copy some of their moves? No. Uh, no, I've definitely seen people that I just thought, you wanker, I just do not want to be like that. <laughs> I mean, mentioning no names, Bono. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny sometimes seeing these clips of early REM and, and early Smiths and people like that, you know, I can see that there's, um, yeah, people having to go. But Morrissey had a uniqueness, which I think was quite... Yeah, I mean, he's a very uh, outgoing performer. I mean, um, what's his name out of REM? Michael Stipe. Michael Stipe. Yeah, he's he, he's less of an egomaniac, I think. I don't know. Not sorry to call Morrissey an egomaniac, but I'm pretty damn sure he is. <laughs> um, yes, I think that's a good pet. Um, I don't know. I'm very impressed by, you know, like when you see uh, that uh, Talking Heads film, Stop Making yes. Sense. I mean, my God, he's a brilliant performer. It just seems, it seems unlikely. David Byrne, that is. Um, I went to see him a, a few years ago and I was amazed at how good he was because I remember in the, I don't know if it was in the 90s or the late 80s going to see a, a David Byrne solo show and it was one of the longest, most boring gigs of my life. But um, do I, do you know, it's funny, I, I, uh, I'm just not a performer performer and is it, do you know the band Perfume Genius? Oh God, um, ye, I must, I've come across the name Perfume Genius. But, yes. um, well, I, I mean, I've been to see them a few times and when I first saw them, I just love how, because mainly it's just this, this guy, but what an awkward, sensitive performer he was. But as they got bigger and bigger, I went to see him. He became more of a performer and he was doing sort of dancing. It just didn't, none of it looked quite right. It's like, oh God, I want it. I want him to go back to being that awkward, sensitive person he was. Yes. That he wants to become sort of thing. Throwing shapes. Yeah, tricky one. Yeah, throwing shapes. See, I can't throw shapes. I just can't. No, you didn't do the David Bowie kind of go for mime school and work with somebody to sort of, or Kate Bush, you know, they both were. Maybe I should have. I mean, God, I love Kate Bush and David Bowie, so yeah. Maybe yeah. I should have. I Mind know. you, Kate Bush playing live, doesn't she? She does now. I mean, it didn't. And I, and I went to see her at Hammersmith. And what did you it? enjoy it? No, I thought it was awful. It was like bad theatre. And I, I guess, and I love her, and I still love her. I think she's a musical genius, but um, I just found, yeah, it was it was like Amdram. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, loving it. I, but I didn't. I didn't like it at all. It's a bit awkward when you see people like that, you know, who've been away so long, and then they're back, and it's. I just kind of, I don't know. You kind of just wish you'd seen her when she first done her tour and went, wow. Yeah, she just did that one tour. But to be honest, I wasn't that enamoured with her until the Dreaming 
that was when I woke up to her. She was always a bit dubious and hippie when I was younger. But then when the dreaming came out, I was like, wow, where did that come from? That's incredible. Yeah. And then I really loved the second side of The Hounds of Love, The Ninth Wave, which interestingly she did in its entirety at Hammersmith. And um, it's taken me until now to be able to listen to it again without seeing them all pretending to be on the ship. So, um, yeah. Yes, well, I, there is Dreamer's Sheep, isn't there? The jig, and I just thought those songs were stunning. They were so such an unusual yeah. second side, really. Yeah, it's fantastic. But I do think the sensual world is also stunning as well. So there's some beautiful stuff on the sensual world. Yeah. Yeah, good old Kate. It's funny. You wonder what they do all day, really, isn't it? Just get up, yeah. pit, you know, her and Enya and people. You know, what do they do? <laughs> what do they just do? They kind of. I imagine they bake. And Sade, you know, what does Sade do all day? You know, that's what. Oh, yeah. She live in Los Angeles or something. I don't know. But surely in a record shop, you'd have heard Diamond Life a lot in 84. Oh, my God, did I? Yeah, I even went to see her, one of her first gigs at Heaven. And I was amazed that she, her, I thought her, her voice will never um, cut through, but it did. She's great. And she's just an amazing looking woman. Um, and, you know, she stood the test of time. Like she did a, I don't know when it came out, but there was a song called By Your Side. Yeah. Or something, I can't remember. It's something like that. It's just one of the most beautiful songs that she's ever done. That's one person from the 80s. I mean, you know, she's, I, people think of her as sort of NAF M.O.R., but she's done some very beautiful things. Yeah, I think she's all right. You got, you just got to let her. You know, I just, yeah, it was good. Shardo, <laughs> there you go. We'll we'll end on show. But look, Dominic, thank you ever so much for this. This has been amazing. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, and um, yes, look, all the best. And I'll keep in touch. And if you want, I can always send you the link to the interview, and then you can of use, yeah, that's great. You can use it on your social media platform sites. Although, <laughs> oh, that's another thing I'm not very good at. <laughs> <laughs> TikTok, I know, yes. Anyway, look, this has been brilliant. Thank you ever so much for your time. Thank you, David. Love to meet you. Okay, take care and uh, all yeah. the best for the year. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. I know, I love leaving that last bit in, just because it always seems a little bit sort of self-conscious and a bit fumbly. That's just me, though. Anyway, look, a big thank you to Dominic Appleton from the band Breathless. Forgive me the time for that interview. If you want to find out any more information about them, just Google away. Just You'll find them. And um, just put band, because otherwise it'll be the film that comes up. And uh, or some medical issue. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do the C86 show or C86 show. Um, keep it positive and nice. Otherwise, um, why did you bother? And uh, you can find these interviews on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. It's true. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe. Speak soon.